Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, and we thank you that we, your people, may gather together, uh, we who rest in the finished work of Christ, may gather to worship Him on this first day of the week. We pray today that you would uh, guide and direct us by your Holy Spirit. Uh, May you be glorified through the continued study of the doctrines of your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin with going backwards for just a minute uh, because uh, one of uh, you, one of uh, you astute students, uh, noted that last week I took a divergence uh, in the last question and answer. Um, And I believe it was the last question and answer. and the, the, the issue was, is I had asked the question, um, do we do, do men, does mankind do anything good? I think that was along the, the lines of, of where I was going. And uh, we had a brief discussion uh, about that because man is made in God's image, we still do good things, quote unquote, uh, but those good things uh, do not measure up. Uh, they are not comparable in terms of uh, the goodness of God. And I'll elaborate a little bit on that when we look at this first question today. Uh, but, but one of you said, um, well, that is true, and I agree with that, but that's not what the Heidelberg Catechism says. Uh, in fact, uh, he argued that it looks to me like you could almost construe the language of this Heidelberg Catechism that we looked at last week into what we would call theologically utter depravity. And if you're not familiar with these distinctions, um, in in neo-Calvinistic, almost I call it church pop culture Calvinism, um, where you come up with these five points of Calvinism, and uh, the first one of those points being uh, total depravity. Uh, Some will make the distinction that total depravity is not utter depravity, Uh, meaning while we are totally depraved, we are not utterly depraved in the sense that uh, something cannot be done that is good. And he argued, it seems to me, that the uh, Heidelberg Catechism is arguing The language seems to me to be utter depravity. So just real quickly, I want to go back to last week, and I want to read to you uh, 6, 7, and 8. Listen closely. Question 6. Did God create people so wicked and perverse? Question mark. No. God created them good and in His own image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that they might truly know God, their Creator, love Him with all their heart, and live with God in eternal happiness to praise and glorify Him. Question number seven. Then, where does this corrupt human nature come from? Answer. The fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. This fall has so poisoned our nature that we are all conceived and born in a sinful condition. Question number eight. But are we so corrupt, and this was the question and answer that that he's commenting on, but are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined toward all evil? Answer, yes unless we are born again by the Spirit of God. Now, what he was, he was honing in on is that language of unable, totally unable to do any good and inclined toward 
all evil. And he said, it seemed to me that you were arguing uh, a, a variation from that. So, I give you that introduction to say this. Here's what we need to remember. We need to remember the difference between God's sight and our sight. And what I was doing, perhaps not as uh, uh, theologically uh, intensive as I should have done, uh, the difference between God's sight and our sight is that an unbeliever can do something that is good. They can... um, found a charity that comes up with a vaccine for malaria and saves hundreds, thousands, millions of people in, in Africa, for example. You know, wh- whatever the case is, you pick your charity, you pick your good deed, whatever the case is, is and that is good in our sight, right? And we, who are believers, do good things for one another, for the church, for God, so forth and so on. But the perspective of the catechism is not in our sight. And that's the distinction. The distinction is, is in God's sight. And so when it says totally unable, and when it says all evil, what the catechism is doing is drawing from Scripture. For example, Romans chapter 3, immediately, you, you probably do too, immediately think of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. No one can do any good, none is righteous, so forth and so on. And, and that language is total language. And so the point is, is that when we, are be, when we are looking at the catechism and when we are looking and where this is leading us is to the gospel and to our justification through the righteousness of Christ alone, it is painting in black and white, making sure that we understand that in God's sight, we don't do any good. In God's sight... There is no goodness because He is the perfect standard of goodness in everything other than perfection, without variation, untainted by the sin of Adam, unaffected by the fact that we, and as I said last week, the the key point in Romans 3.23 is, is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the majestic perfection of His moral purity, And that which He is in His essence, in His being, every single one of us falls short of this. So, that's why the Catechism can say that we are indeed totally depraved, or in other words, insinuate that we're totally depraved because the perspective is in God's sight. Yes. Yeah, and, and that's that language, the word hate, is used in the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, and and the, the idea, uh, I think we looked at that week before last, didn't we, that, 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 uh, that in fact we, we hate God. And, and again, this is language that we're not familiar with, um, not accustomed to, uh, but when you begin to change your viewpoint uh, from my sight, your sight, to God's sight, then we can understand that, in fact, these rather what we might consider harsh statements are, in fact, consistent with Scripture. 
So we'll talk about this as it comes up even more, but let's look at this question number nine. But doesn't God do us an injustice by requiring His law that we are unable to do? Now pause there for just a second. Do not look at the answer yet. Bear with me. I want you to engage with me. What is, in your own words, what is this question asking? Because it is a question that inevitably anyone that wrestles with the gospel and our sinfulness comes to this, or wrestles with their sinfulness, comes to. What is this question asking? Okay, one is, 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 is God just in the sense that, uh, in the sense that He is requiring something of us? And what is it saying that He is requiring of us? Something we can't do. So, to use modern terminology... Um, we would say, uh, is it uh, equitable? Is it equitable? Is it, is it fair that, that God requires moral perfection? Is that, is that, is that fair? And, and, and again, what would be, why, why would we think from a human perspective, why would we say that, think that that's not fair? Because we inherited, JG, JJ, go ahead. Yeah, but we inherited our sin nature. And someone might say, well, then I'm a sinner from conception, and I'm brought forth in iniquity, and so I never got a fair shot, and that's not fair. And what's, what, what's the, the counter to that? Well, I think about it this way. Um, number one, that's presuming that I would have held firm ground in the Garden of Eden. I'm really, I'm, I'm really not thinking that I would. Because my forefather Adam, who was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, who had not a sin nature, and yet even then, fell in sin. And so if, if he, who was created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, d- could sin, I don't think I would fare any better. And so all of a sudden, the argument begins to fall apart, doesn't it? If, it, if we begin to say, you know, really, the, the point is, is that I am a sinner, and I'm a sinner not only by nature, but also thought, word, and deed. Now look at the answer with me. God created human beings with the ability to keep the law. They, however, provoked by the devil, in willful disobedience, robbed themselves and all their descendants of their gifts. Now there's just some genius language in here, uh, as, as you can see. First of all, uh, created human beings with the ability to keep the law. Adam and Eve uh, were perfectly able to keep the law. Um, I love the way that the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes this. It says, uh, man being, being left to uh, the freedom of their own will. <laughs> you know, everybody talks about freedom of will. You know, you Calvinists, you guys don't believe in the, in the freedom of the, of the will or anything like that. And I'm saying, yeah, yeah, we do. And Adam showed that he could not choose God over sin. 
Even he who had a free will, left to the freedom of their own will, Adam and Eve chose sin over God. And the second thing that I love here is willful disobedience. Um, They were provoked by the devil, but the devil didn't make them do it. They did it eyes wide open. They willfully chose to disobey God's covenant of works. And then, this is my favorite part, robbed themselves. Isn't that genius? What did they... they, They're they're barren robbers, right? Our grandparents. What did they rob themselves of? Well, they... They robbed themselves of, of perfect communion with God. Uh, they robbed themselves of being out from under the wrath and curse of God. They robbed themselves uh, of uh, uh, being free of the sins, uh, of the miseries of this life. They robbed themselves of eternal life and instead chose death, They so forth and so on. We could go on, couldn't we? And, this is the best part of it, and all their descendants of these gifts. They robbed us of the gifts of God by virtue of their sin. And so, should we be judged for something that is a result of Adam's original sin? Uh, Again, goes back to the question, were I Adam, would I have fared better? How was man provoked then by the devil? And what do we learn from this? And I think this is a good place for us just to pause for just a second. I like that the Heidelberg Catechism includes this. What does it mean that they were provoked by the devil? What does it mean they were provoked? Right? Yeah, we think about Jesus' temptation. I mean, you know, similarly, uh, there was a form of enticement uh, to sin. Um, we see that the, the Satan in the form of a serpent uh, had the gift of persuasion, but he also had the gift of reasoning. Um, you shall be like God. I mean, that, that is, that is a, a, a willful reasoning uh, with someone who, again, at that point was uh, perfectly holy. And, and so, uh, to be provoked by the devil is to be enticed, to be tempted toward that which is against God. What way may we learn from this? And looking back, we all know the story of the Garden of Eden. We all know the story of, the, of Eve's temptation and subsequently Adam. We all know uh, the story of the fall. What may we, who are fallen in sin, what may we learn from that? All right? We are easily deceived. Isn't that part of it in, 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 in the, the, the temptation of Eve? We're sitting there reading it and we're thinking, you, you see what's coming, right? You see what's... Well, we've read the rest of the story, but she had not. And, and so uh, she was, in fact, easily deceived. What else? Um, okay, I'll have to think on that. That's a, that's a, that is a very interesting perspective. Um, 
So I'll think on that. That's good. Yeah. What else? What else can we learn today from how the, how the devil provoked them to sin? Yeah. I mean, you know, what's interesting, the old expression, and I know it was, it was said in jest, but the devil made me do it, um, is just biblically unfounded, right? I mean, he didn't force them to do it. He did entice them. And what else, just for sake of time, a couple of other things for you to think about. Uh, Roger? Yeah, he's a, he's a reasonable being, reasoning with man, um, something that, that would not be done with any of the other creatures, right? Uh, but, but he is reasoning with Eve. And, and the other thing is, along those reasoning, is he knows what her weaknesses are. He knows the vulnerability. And you say, you mean someone who is created in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness could have vulnerabilities? Yes, because we're not God. We are created beings. And where He goes, and the essence of His argument is summed up in, you shall be like God. Ironically enough, and theologians have, have noted this for centuries, uh, is note the connection uh, between uh, Adam, I mean, uh, uh, Satan's argument with Eve and Satan's own personal fall. He who fell by virtue of his pride so enticed man by virtue of her and his pride. And so it's interesting to see that, that tie-in. He's, he's, he's weaving something. As someone said before, is our God is a creator, Satan is a being. Ergo, he creates nothing new. Um, it, it's, it's his same devices, his same arguments. He may put a little bit of a different spin on it or a different shine on it, but it's the same argument seen all the way. You and I will never face, this is a bold statement, but I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I can back it up in Scripture. You and I will never face a temptation from our enemy that we have not already seen and read in Scripture. There is nothing new under the sun. And so we see this in the provoking of the devil. And so this gets back to to what uh, we said just a minute ago is Adam, neither Adam nor Eve were forced to sin but rather were enticed and so willfully disobeyed, being enticed by the pride of their heart. Of what gifts were Adam and Eve robbed from? Or were, were, were and we robbed? Of what gifts were Adam, Eve, and we robbed? We talked about this just a minute ago, right? Robbed of, of life. Robbed of living for forever. What else? Relational. Relational. That's right. The, the communion being lost with God by virtue of that sin. Huh? <laughs> Worrying about what they were going to wear, right? Yeah. It just wasn't that hard before the fall, was it? Yeah. And it all goes, see? It all goes back to the fall. <laughs> no, yeah. 
That's right. Houses without closets. Huh? No. <laughs> All right. Let's look at the tenth question. Does God permit such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Answer, certainly not. God is terribly angry with the sin we are born with as well as the sins we personally commit. As a just judge, God will punish them both now and in eternity. Having declared... Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law. Now, let, let's think through this just a second, um, or more than a second. Um, I, I've got three questions on your handout for you to ponder. And those are, what is punishment? What is its purpose? And what principle must it satisfy? So those are the three questions. You've got your thinking caps on. I want you thinking about this, and, and you can see they're, they're, they're in progressive order. So let's start with the first one. What is punishment? And again, to, to be clear, I'm talking about in the context of God's justice, our topic here in the Heidelberg Catechism, right? What is punishment? In, in the context, well, uh, all the above. Human beings, what is punishment for sin? Well, so, um, yeah, let's back up at a more rudimentary level because really loss of joy is not a punishment, it's a consequence. Um, and loss of joy also, uh, it can also be classified within a discipline of God, but punishment is what? What is punishment in terms of the justice of God? What's that? Okay, we could see it within the context of God's wrath. That's a good place to start. Why is God's wrath required? Okay, God is holy, set apart, above everything else. But the main thing to remember is the word just. If our God is a just God, then even one sin is deserving of His justice, right? And therefore, punishment is the carrying out of that justice, in the context of God's justice, right? So if God is a just God, and if we sin, therefore that sin must be punished because our God is a just God, and He cannot, and the the, the key word there is cannot, He is not able not to judge that sin and to deliver for that sin punishment. Now, The question then of what is the purpose, the purpose of punishment is the perfect fulfillment of God's justice, right? Because if you think about it in in, in this way, is our God who is just does not sweep sin under the carpet. That's not what the gospel teaches, although that's a popular uh, deduction by some. 
Uh, no. Our God, who is a just God, requires moral perfection of everyone made in His image. And therefore, when one sins, that person and humanity in general are deserving of His punishment. The pouring out of His wrath, which is a just wrath, upon the sinner who has broken His law. And so what is the principle that this must satisfy? Well, really, the principle is God's justice. And again, you know where this is going. You know where the questions are going to take us. It's going to take us to the cross of Christ. We're not there yet. We're walking slowly in, in down that path, right? But, but the main thing for us to understand, because incidentally... And this is where a lot of modern evangelical confusion comes in with the gospel. If you don't get the justice of God right, you're going to come up with a gospel that's really not the gospel. And so the point is, is our God, who is a just God, must carry out His justice. Justice must be satisfied. So how does God punish sin now or in eternity? How does God punish sin now or in eternity? You go all the way back. This is an easy question. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, and it's, it's going to tell us that. So what was sin deserving of? The very first sin. Death. That's right. And so death is the punishment for sin. That is why... Every human being dies a physical death. But so also in eternity, what is the punishment for sin in eternity? Well, separation from God, but even more from that, eternal death, the lake of fire, the eternal torment of damnation, as we would say. And so there is the death that is the punishment, but so also, and this is why incidentally, why you'll hear Jesus use uh, language like, um, well, uh, whether it's Jesus quoting or it's the Apostle John, for God so loved the world uh, that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. So this idea of, of perishing is an eternal sense, not that we will not die a physical death, but that we would not die to an eternal damnation, an eternal pun punishment, so forth and so on. And so God punishes sin, and He punishes sin and will punish sin forever. So with what does God punish sin? Well, this goes back to what Chris said earlier. God punishes sin with His wrath. Look at uh, Nahum uh, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. Or as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so it is the wrath of God that punishes sin. And why is judgment certain? And what does it say about God? And I'm going to talk a little bit about this 
uh, today in, in my sermon and uh, judgment and judgment day and, and so forth. Uh, but one of the things that we see through Scripture that is consistently repeated in the Old and New Testament is the concept of a final judgment. There will be a last day of time as we know it. At that point, there will be judgment. And why is judgment certain? In other words, you would say, okay, if our God is a just God, and if God punishes sin by pouring out His wrath upon them, uh, why do we not see that instantaneously within the world? Answer is, is our God is patient, our God is long-suffering, our God also has chosen a day, has appointed a day on which He will judge not some, but every single sin ever committed, starting with Eve. All the way back, all the way beyond our lives, should the Lord tarry, God will in fact punish sin. And so, why is judgment certain? Because our God is a just God. And a just God must punish sin. So what does this say about God? Well, if anything, if anything it says, is it says just like Isaiah chapter 6, our God is high and lifted up. Our God is to be revered in a day and age of sloppiness, we need to hear the clarion call that our God is a holy God. He is a just God. He will stand for His righteous judgment upon every single sin committed upon planet earth. And so you would say, whew, man, I didn't expect this today during Sunday school. It's getting a little heavy and intense and a little hot. And so you would say, so isn't God merciful? I mean, isn't that what we believe? Well, that's exactly the next question, isn't it? Look at question 11. Isn't God also merciful? Answer, God is certainly merciful, but also just. God's justice demands that sin committed against His supreme majesty be punished with the supreme penalty, eternal punishment of body and soul. Now, I want to walk through this, and I promise not to end the class today with a reminder of what we believe in the gospel. So, uh, before there is uh, weeping, and crying out and flailing upon the floor. Uh, let's walk, pause that for just a second. I know everyone was just right there on the cusp. Um, but good news is coming. But let's start with this question. How does God, how has God demonstrated His mercy throughout Scripture? I mean, is it just a New Testament concept? You know, you've heard that thing before. Is, you know, well, I believe in the New Testament God because that Old Testament God, He's just so mean and, and, and wrathful and vengeful. And so I'm just a New Testamenter, right? You've heard this before. Yeah. 
Can, can, I, can we go back to the garden? Why was Eve not instantly executed? I mean, that, that's what God said, right? Why was not Adam immediately crucified? God is, is, is merciful. And we see this consistently, that He's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's a very good, that's Exodus chapter 34. It's a really good balanced expression of God's justice and His mercy. And so does God in His mercy set aside the punishment? When it says that God forgave, that God forgives, is He setting aside His justice? Saying, well, I am a just God, and I require moral perfection. But man, those folks have just been so nice and so good, and they just seem to have a right heart attitude. And so I'm just going to park justice on the side here for a minute, and uh, I'm going to forgive them. Is that how God works? I'm going to go with everybody's thinking no right now. Okay, sorry. So, <laughs> uh, and, and, and so, if that is the case, then how does God punish? I mean, how does God forgive? We'll do it this way. We'll start with the Garden of Eve and end in the Heavenly Garden. Right? To what did God look in forgiving the sin of Eve, sin of Adam, and every sin of those who in faith believed? Our theology says that, that God established a covenant of grace in which He was rescuing those who were in the estate of sin and misery and bringing them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. And so all of those who looked in faith to the promise of God... They were looking to the fulfillment of Christ's atoning work upon the cross. Was every single sin for all who believe atoned for in the cross of Christ? Yes. God's wrath was not dismissed. It wasn't swept under the carpet. It was satisfied. That is a key distinction. Big distinction. Because... On the last day, on judgment day, when we are judged, I love the way that the Shorter Catechism puts this, that we who are in Christ will be openly acknowledged and acquitted. For what? 
for the atoning work of Christ upon the cross. He satisfied God's justice in His death. God's wrath, by virtue of, by virtue of punishment for our sin, punishment for our sin, we who believe, our punishment was poured out upon Christ. He bore the wrath of God. And so we, too, look back. And so the Old Testament believers look toward the atoning work of Christ. We who are after the cross look back to the atoning work of Christ. In all of this, God's wrath is satisfied. But God's wrath is not satisfied as a blanket clause. It does not satisfy everyone and whoever might be smart enough or sharp enough to buy into the system uh, might receive this type of atonement, but rather it was very specific, specifically for His elect, those who, by His grace, would indeed believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to end with this question, is eternal punishment then merely spiritual suffering? In other words, if you say, okay, if we who are in Christ, if our punishment for sin has been satisfied by God pouring out His wrath upon the cross of Christ, then what of those who are not in Christ? You say, well, God's justice must still be satisfied. And so His wrath must be poured out. They must be punished for sin. And you say, well, sins are, are committed... Um, our soul, soul and spirit, we might say, may be carried out in the deeds of the flesh and so forth. And so is eternity for those who are not in Christ some sort of metaphysical, uh, spiritual uh, type of holding place? The answer, what does Scripture say? I mean, Jesus is crystal clear that it will be an eternal torment of body and soul, just as we who will enjoy everlasting life in eternity, both body and soul in glorified state, so those who are apart from Christ will be eternally tormented in body and soul. And so that is all the more reason for us to emphasize the cross of Christ, all the more reason for us to rejoice as we're going to do today, I mean, you think about it, for, as Christians for 2,000 years, we have been gathering in worship to rejoice over this, to, to exalt the name of Jesus because He died in our stead. He atoned for our sin. He arose from the dead conquering sin and death. That's worth worshiping for another 2,000, 10,000, 12 trillion years, Right? forever and ever. And so that is the Christian testimony. And we're going to stop there. We'll pick up next week. I do want you to know that we're getting ready to change gears. So hang with me. The Heidelberg Catechism is going to soon switch gears to a topic called deliverance. And we'll look at that in the coming weeks. Let me pray for us. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we who are gathered together in His name today, uh, we cannot stop rejoicing over this truth. Uh, we could spend eternity rejoicing over this truth and indeed will. And so today, 
as we gather together, may our hearts and minds be directed to our Lord Jesus Christ, Christ crucified and resurrected, that we might be brought back into right fellowship with you, that we might save, be saved from your wrath and curse, that we might indeed enjoy Christ both today and forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.